Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and this is Gospel Wabi Sabi, not to be confused with Gospel Wasabi, which is a very spicy Japanese condiment, but I don't know how wasabi is related to the gospel. Wabi Sabi, however, describes the ability to see beauty and imperfection and things that are used or even broken. It's the way I think Jesus looked at people. He saw their creator-given beauty, and through his work on the cross and resurrection, he is now at work restoring that beauty until one day all of creation will be restored as his eternal kingdom. And Jesus is at work right now through something beautiful called the body of Christ to begin that restoration work in the lives of imperfect people. So this is season five, episode 20, God's secret weapon. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 20, or 12 through 26. But before we get to that, just want to say I'm going to be taking a week off or so after this episode, and we'll be back uh, after the first of the year, so you'll see new episodes drop after that. As always, I appreciate your financial support of this podcast, and you can do that if you're not already a supporter through the Spotify page. You'll see a link to be able to do that there, and also through my website, jeffebert.com. So let's prepare our hearts now to... Uh, hear God's word, and respond to him. A while back when I lived in New Jersey, I heard a story about a local guy who was into sports betting. I mean, he was gambling on the outcome of various sporting events, and he made a $200 wager with some bookie that the University of Michigan would win the NCAA College Basketball Championship and that Tiger Woods would win the Masters Golf Tournament. And he got really good odds, 50 to 1, which meant if he was right, he'd win like $10,000. Well, he was wrong on both counts, so he might as well have flushed that $200 down the toilet. 50 to 1 odds. That's not very promising. In fact, it's a sucker's bet. You're literally throwing your money away. Well, what were the odds that the first century Christian church would survive as a movement throughout history? That the followers of Jesus would last as a group for even a couple of weeks? Not very good. Not even a thousand to one. Smart money would have bet against them. Remember Jesus arrested, his disciples scattered in fear. Jesus publicly humiliated, tortured, brutally executed as an example to anyone else who would dare question the power of the Roman or Jewish authorities. The road outside of Jerusalem was literally lined with crosses with the corpses of crucified men. They were like telephone poles down a highway. The message was very clear. This is how we deal with troublemakers. And yet, just a few days later, the disciples were out in the streets and public public squares, boldly proclaiming Jesus as the resurrected Messiah, the Savior of the world. All the power of the Roman governor, all the power of the religious leaders and institutions of the day, all the power of the larger pagan world of Rome and Greece, all united against this small band of true believers. There were only a handful who were still followers of Jesus. The disciples after his crucifixion were numbering only 11 because they were minus Judas who had hanged himself, overcome with grief for betraying Jesus. A few more dedicated women who were in the inner core of believers, maybe as many as 100 people altogether who were truly convinced of Jesus' resurrection who had seen him with their own eyes, maybe up to 500 people to whom Jesus appeared, but nobody powerful, nobody who could bankroll a movement, no one who could lead a military rebellion. The odds were totally stacked against them. The safe bet would be that the Christians would be like a thousand other ancient mystical movements 
that were quickly added to the trash heap of religious history, not even worth a footnote. The only way to explain how the Church of Jesus grew and expanded and thrived is that its message was true. Jesus was and is God's Son who takes away the sins of the world. And the power of the resurrected Christ really was at work in and among those true believers. God's Holy Spirit was empowering them in ways that did not make sense, that were not rational, that broke down barriers and changed hearts and minds and lives. People experienced the power of God in a fresh, dynamic, and new way through the body of Christ, the church. What is this thing called the church? Now, we've been exploring a kind of the roots of it in this preaching series in uh, first century Corinth about the church there. And we're connecting with some of the people who struggled with real problems following and proclaiming Jesus Christ. And they had problems in the midst of a decadent and pagan culture that did everything it could to crush the life out of them. But all the military and political power of Rome and the intellectual sophistication of Greece, it was all now allied against the early Christians. What hope did they have? The Apostle Paul knew they had a secret weapon, something he called the body of Christ. So we're going to read about it now in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting with verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we are all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body every one of them, just as they as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable, unpre are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that, they, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. The body of Christ. Paul was the one who created this incredible word picture to encapsulate how followers of Jesus were to function together and relate to each other. The phrase is so familiar to us now that we take it for granted. It's hard for us to grasp how innovative Paul was 2,000 years ago. This image of the body of Christ is an incredibly powerful metaphor of our common spiritual life together in Christ. Why did Paul call the church, church the body of Christ? He could have chosen many other images. There are many other images in Scripture about the followers of Jesus. Jesus gave us one in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, 
I am the vine, you are the branches. We could build a whole description of the followers of Jesus around gardening imagery. Or in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter talks about the followers of Christ as God's building, where Jesus is the cornerstone and the teaching of the apostles is the foundation. We could more fully develop that imagery of a building to describe the followers of Jesus. In fact, Paul echoes both of those images in 1 Corinthians 3.9 that we've already seen. He wrote, you are God's field, God's building. He puts both the agricultural and the architectural together. Or if Paul wanted to talk about the complexity of how things work together, he could have used an image of an ancient machine, like a chariot, like God's chariot. It's a primitive machine by our standards, but still, it would illustrate the effect of working together of many parts. Why choose the body of Christ? Well, this isn't taught anywhere in Scripture, perhaps, but this is just my opinion, that the differences between the image of the human body and the images of a field, a building, or a chariot are many. You see, a body is alive. It's not static or mechanical. It's not a machine, per se, that cannot move on its own. It's a living and growing thing, a dynamic system that interacts with its environment. And the human body is flexible. It has movement. It bends and twists. Think of how many muscles are involved in simply bending over to pick something up off the floor. This is an incredibly complex movement, how difficult eye-hand coordination really is. For your brain to see something, identify what it is, transfer instructions through your arm to your fingers to pick it up, or just the fine motor skills required to pick up a nickel. Unbelievably complex. The human body is also connected. With all the movement and complexity, there is still instant communication from all parts. Step on a nail and your whole body knows it immediately. The whole body reacts automatically. The body is a system where all parts interact simultaneously. And in its complexity, there is great mystery and beauty in the human body. Listen to this. According to Dr. John Medina, a genetic engineer at the University of Washington, he says that the average human heart pumps over 1,000 gallons a day, over 55 million gallons in a lifetime. That's enough fluid to fill 13 super tankers. Your heart never sleeps, never stops beating. 200 or 2.5 billion times in a lifetime. Your lungs contain a thousand miles of capillaries. Each second, over 100,000 chemical reactions occur in your brain. Our human DNA consists of about 2,000 genes per chromosome. 1.8 meters of DNA are folded into each cell nucleus. A cell nucleus is only six microns long. This is like putting 300 or 30 miles of fishing line into a cherry pit. And it isn't simply stuffed in, it's folded in. If folded one way, the cell becomes a skin cell, if another, a liver cell, and so forth. To write out that genetic information in one cell would take about 300 volumes, each volume about 500 pages thick. The human body contains enough DNA that if it were stretched out, it would circle the sun 260 times. And the body uses energy efficiently. If an average adult rides a bicycle for one hour at 10 miles per hour, it uses the amount of energy contained in three ounces of carbohydrate. If a car were this efficient with gasoline, it would get 900 miles to the gallon. The body is so efficient, and that's why it's hard to lose weight just by burning calories. So why call the church the body of Christ? Because first and foremost, the church is an organism, not an organization. As originally conceived, the church is a dynamic, life-pulsating group of people who are animated by the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ. A group of people, not a building, not an institution. The church is people, 
animated, made alive by the indwelling Holy Spirit who came upon the followers of Jesus in an upper room on the day we now call Pentecost. God's body has tremendous strength, flexibility, beauty, and has incredibly complicated relational connections. Jesus is manifested. Jesus is made real, not just through individual believers, but through the whole body working together. The body of Christ is stronger together than the sum of its parts. The church is stronger than the sum of its individual believers, like a rope. Rope finds strength by weaving together many small strands. That's how believers find victory in the face of a faith-crushing culture. We are woven together into the body of Christ. Of course, there are so many sad stories of the church gone wrong, no doubt about it. Church fights, church splits, power plays, egos, abuse, leaders who implode, congregational members whose hearts turn to stone or who are only consumers of church programs, who have lost the sense of the vital connection of the body. The visible church, too often it's ineffective. There's a loss of vision. Christians are tired. They're asleep. There's no passion to share the gospel, no purpose. Too often false teaching spreads. The church compromises its biblical beliefs to try and be more popular with the culture. Too often the church becomes too political and its mission gets co-opted by whatever brand of politics its leaders embrace. Makes you wonder, does the church really represent a body where Christ is the head? Have you ever been to a carnival or a boardwalk and seen the plywood sheet or plastic board and it's painted with figures to represent like a muscle man or a cartoon character in swimsuits? And you put your head through the hole in the board and then have your picture taken. And it's funny because the head doesn't match the body. The more of a mismatch, the funnier it is. If we could picture Christ as the head of our local body of believers, would the world laugh at the misfit? Or would they stand back in awe of a body so closely related to a divine head? It's important to understand the work of the Holy Spirit in making this body of Christ work the way Christ intended. We believe that God is three in one, one God who eternally exists in three persons, that we experience as God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Like a room has three dimensions, it has length and width and height. You need all three dimensions in order to have space. Take any one of those dimensions away and all you would have would be a flat line and we'd all be crushed. We need three dimensions to have space. And we need three dimensions to fully understand God. <coughs> Excuse me. For us, the Holy Spirit is experienced as the means of our direct encounter with the living God. The love of Christ or the life of Christ is in you because of the indwelling spirit. This body of Christ is brought together by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in today's passage, verse 12, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. For the Jews, Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are already baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we are all given the same one spirit. Okay? Uh, the spirit is the common denominator between all Christians. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. The Spirit is Christ's active presence in our lives right now. And the Spirit is the one who causes us to grow spiritually. So how does the Spirit work? How does the Spirit cause spiritual growth in our lives? First, the Spirit indwells and empowers the believer. The Holy Spirit lives within you. If you've given your life to Christ, the Spirit is the one who brings your soul to life 
and continually indwells you with Christ's presence. That's what allows Christ to be present in every follower simultaneously. The Holy Spirit allows you to have instant communication to the head, just like a nervous system, instant connection. The Spirit brings nourishment to every cell, just like the blood vessels. The Spirit cleanses you from sin, like the kidneys cleanse your blood. And the Spirit heals your wounds, just as the skin heals itself. The Spirit breathes life and oxygenates the body. The Spirit gives gifts to each member of the body. I don't have space in this podcast to go in any depth into discovering and using your spiritual gifts for the health of the whole body. I think every believer should know and understand their spiritual gifts and be willing to use those gifts for the sake of the gospel. And I'll do more with that when we get to chapter 17, or chapter 14, I'm sorry. But all of these things, that's what the Holy Spirit does for you and for the church. Now, there are two ways the Spirit brings this power and life into the believer. First, the Holy Spirit inspires and illumines the Word of God the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. The primary means for us to know God is through reading and understanding scripture. So the Bible provides us with a framework or a foundation for our faith. Jesus said in John 16, 13, that the Spirit would remind us of his teachings and would instruct us or help us to understand everything he said and the teachings of the apostles as well. The Spirit is the one who oversaw or inspired the writing of the Old and New Testaments. It's the Spirit's job to teach us all things and lead us to God's truth. And that's why Christians are called people of the book, meaning the Bible. And Scripture is powerful enough to transform. You know what missionaries are discovering in Muslim countries? Just get people to read the Bible and then watch the Spirit work. Just get people to open up the New Testament. Maybe start with the Gospel of Don. Just get people to read the words of Jesus and then just let the Holy Spirit loose to do His work of heart transformation. There is Holy Spirit power in the Word of God. That's why people are so afraid of it. The second way the Spirit works in us is that the Spirit unites and equips the body of Christ and provides a framework of experience. We are welded together with all other believers in Christ, whether you like them or not. We are a new community, a new family, and it was God's design to bring all kinds of people together under his name in one body, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, male and female. And something magnificent happens in, the inter- in that interaction. Participation in the body of Christ, it's a living laboratory. It's the place where we are in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. God wants us to interact with each other and go deep with each other in the body. He wants us to love and to care and to shoulder each other's burdens. He wants us to confront the powers of racism and sexism and greed and exploitation, and all the sin and injustice that is still hiding in the corners of our hearts, all the immorality. That means when we're faced with real life situations and problems, we don't run away or drift into isolation. We're supposed to work things out together, cry and laugh together. God wants us to stretch and challenge each other. As the Bible says in Proverbs, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And sometimes that sharpening creates sparks. Sometimes it creates conflict. But it's how it's in how we handle that conflict and how we spark each other that spiritual growth happens, how spiritual and emotional maturity happens. The Word of God must be lived out within the people of God. Let me say that again. The Word of God must be lived out within the people of God. That's how the Holy Spirit causes spiritual growth to happen. Scriptural knowledge coupled with living experience. You have to have both working in your life, guided by the indwelling spirit in order for spiritual growth to happen. 
word and body working together. The New Testament knows nothing of an individualized faith, kind of just you and Jesus or you and the Holy Spirit. Spiritual growth does not happen in isolation. It always happens, it seems to me, in community. When Donna and I were first married, I was a student at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary on the North Shore of Boston. I worked as the director of high school ministry at Park Street Church in downtown Boston. It was a big church. We had kids from 22 different high schools in the metropolitan Boston area. It's almost impossible to get new kids to come to our youth group meetings on Sunday night because their parents weren't too keen on them coming into the city at that time. So we kind of reversed what we did with small groups. We had small groups that met during the week in many of those various towns and areas where the kids lived. And these small groups were like little lifeboats sent out from the mothership. They were outreach oriented. So they weren't really discipleship oriented, if you can divide the two. They were really outreach oriented. So that's what we invited new kids to come to first was to the small group. Don and I led a group that was in a town called Saugus, just north of the city. And at that time, Saugus was really kind of an ugly, lower blue collar town. I don't know if it's gotten any better since then. But back when I was in school, it wasn't a good place. But we had a strong group of high school kids who really loved the Lord and really had a heart to reach out to their friends. And one day they invited us to meet a new girl that they were trying to, be to befriend, one of these very sad and very lonely teens. Her name was Felice, which means happy in Spanish, written as never been a greater mismatch between a name and a person, I can tell you that. So we went to Felice's house to meet her and introduce ourselves to her parents. And it was just a shack. I mean, it had peeling wallpaper. It was dirty. The lights were broken. It smelled bad. When we met Felice for the very first time, literally, we could not even see her face. She had long, greasy black hair hanging down in front of her eyes. She wouldn't even look at us. We couldn't see her at all. She had cuts on her arms. She barely said anything to us. And on top of it, their cat had just had some kind of surgery on its back. So half its body was shaved and it had all these nasty looking red stitches going down its backbone. And it wanted to rub up against me. Blah. Felice was the saddest, most depressed person literally I have ever seen. But she got welcomed into this little circle of the body of Christ. And those kids just loved on her, just loved on her and included her, went out of their way to make sure she had friends they treated her exactly how Jesus would have wanted them to treat her. And over the year, her transformation was unbelievable, amazing, miraculous. She went from being the sad, withdrawn, isolated misfit to a bright and happy young woman. She gave her life to Christ the following spring on the high school retreat. She became a positive influence on others. And the love of Christ really just radiated from her smile. You could see the brightness in her eyes. Felice didn't need therapy. She needed the body of Christ. She needed people who loved Jesus and who would share that love with her in sacrificial ways. Folks, when it works, the body of Christ is the most powerful thing in the world for transforming people. Those kids in Saugus, they got it. That was a wabi-sabi in action. They lived out what Paul says here about the body of Christ. We belong to each other. We need each other, and through love, we affect each other. Jesus invests his life in us, and through his spirit, we're connected to, the, to one another and receive direct signals from the head. We are a people through whom Christ's divine life is transmitted to each other and to the world. That's our mission and our purpose. 
John Winthrop, the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, understood this. He was a devoted Christian, a Puritan in the best sense of that word. And in the year 1630, he put it this way to his fellow colonists shortly before they set foot in the new world. And I quote, We must delight in each other, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before us, before our eyes, our community as members of the same body. Unquote. The challenge is really doing it. Have a great Christmas. Take care.